Get off my world. Get off my world. Get off my world. I'm Pat. And I'm Joshua. And this is Get Off My World, a Doctor Who podcast brought to you by three men and the occasional guest, uh, all of a certain age. And uh, we all like to talk about our favorite program, and uh, we also like to try and uh, like the new program as well. And so, uh, what are we starting with here? <laughs> uh, we have a guest this week. We do! I'm sitting right next to him. Hi! <laughs> 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 He's hard to miss. I don't know. Uh, we again have uh, uh, a returning guest, uh, one of our favorite people, Matt Kelson. Hi, everybody. Hey, hey, Matt. Thanks for having me back. Matt, you are our, you're not our first recurring guest because mm-hmm. we've had some live performances where we've had uh, Ariel and various other people come back, mm-hmm. but you're our first returning for a regular recording session. Oh, that's terrific. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm honored. And you're returning because you are our resident monster expert. Well, thank you. And we will be talking about Terror of the Zygons. And the Loch Ness Monster who sort of appears therein. Well, definitely appears. More sort of the Loch Ness Monster who appears therein. That's right. I expect you'll have more to say about that later. Yes, indeed. But first, of course, we like to start every episode with something we like to call Temporal Grace, which is something that we love in the universe of Doctor Who. It can be anything. Matt, you want to start? I have been watching the Australian spin-off from Doctor Who. K-9? K-9. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. I'm um, sorry. Yeah, and obviously this is not something I love about, do- about, the, about the Doctor Who universe. <laughs> um, this is not something anybody loves about the do- Doctor Who universe. But I love a few things about it conceptually. I love that it exists in the first place. Well, I love I love a particular sort of cognitive dissonance that it has, which is that it is even more a children's program than Doctor Who is. It is just conspicuously all out a, you know, condescending, patronizing children's program. <laughs> um, and yet at the same time is set in a bleak future dystopia with black robot Gestapo and <laughs> um, aliens rounded up and put into cells and uh, and it doesn't work, but it, <laughs> but it tries to. And somebody said, hey, let's do this. Hey, let's do a conspicuous children's story about a robot-run bleak future dystopia with a friendly robot dog in it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I love that that's real. I love that it exists. I've watched about six or seven episodes, and then I stopped, and maybe <laughs> I'll watch the rest, and maybe I won't, but... Uh, because, boy, it's just not good. K-9 himself is charmless. His, uh, his companions are much worse. The alien design is, for the most part, drivel. Um, <laughs> and the stories are bad. And the stories are bad. Yeah. Also, the actual narratives. So, uh, so you'll probably be watching them. As well. <laughs> <laughs> I own them on DVD. Yes. Oh, so we'll be talking about it on a future podcast. So, okay. Without question. Some, someday in a, in a future post-apocalyptic universe, uh, this K-9 series will be all... The, 
that remains of, of Australia. <laughs> and people will try to and extrapolate Australian culture from it. And in it's the, going to be a nightmare. In the grim darkness of the 400th century, there is only canine. <laughs> you know, it's not even set in Australia. It's set no, it's in, in London. London yeah. Which looks nothing like any version of London I've ever seen. No, absolutely. <laughs> except the, except the, the eye shows up, the big Ferris wheel that everyone in London hates. Yeah. Anyway, so I love that there's canine. I just don't love how it turned out. What about you, Calvin? Uh, I was rather interested in the news uh, that uh, Chris Chibnall, the the incoming showrunner for Doctor Who, uh, is considering using an American-style writer's room approach to Doctor Who, as opposed to the uh, the way it was traditionally done, where you have a showrunner and you just sort of farm out scripts to whoever, and they send them in. But, you know, so it's going to be like, instead of like one person's overreaching vision, it's going to be the more uh, writer's room collaborative kind of concept, which apparently is a really American kind of thing to do. Mm -hmm. They don't really do it in England, uh, partly because England doesn't have like like an entertainment center type thing. The writers kind of live everywhere, as opposed to America, where like all the, the TV writers are in L.A., Right. So they can just all show up for, a, you know, meetings and whatever all the time. According to the one article I read, they weren't even sure if they could pay the writers enough that they could drive yeah. to one room. <laughs> <laughs> there, there were, there were concerns about just the physical arrangement of it. I think you might end up with some more cohesive story yes. arcs if the writers were all together trying to come up with these things so you wouldn't have uh, some of the just drop the word hybrid in randomly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, I think that's a thing because like uh, a thing that's always jumped out about Doctor Who to me is that it's always been a, a pretty inconsistent show. Even going way back to 1963. I mean, you'll have like really great stories and then I'm just like a really dumb one. So yeah, I think it could be more consistent, or it could be consistently bad. <laughs> yeah. that, that, that's a danger, but uh, yeah, I'm interested to see how that works. Me too. How about you, Josh? I confess that I, of late, have been feeling a little burnt out on Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Doctor this, Who podcast. This happens periodically in a relationship. <laughs> Don't stress out, guys. Um, and so I decided to pick up some other genre spin-off material and I dipped into the new Star Wars novels the new oh. canon like Journey mm. to the Force Awakens where, where are you going with this Josh? I'm really excited about Doctor Who again that's where I'm going with this <laughs> it reminded me that because Doctor Who has been on for 50 plus years and has been done in so many drastic styles that the spin-off material has so much more potential for being interesting than Star Wars spin-off material uh, where they're still regurgitating the same settings and the same yeah. characters and nothing feels like Star Wars in prose because you only have a handful of movies to kind of ape so everyone has yeah. to say the same thing over and over. Han has to call C-3PO Goldenrod over and over again to make sure you know it's Han Solo and he's talking to C-3PO yeah. um, whereas Doctor Who is so wild and weird you can tell any kind of story so um, all it took is one um, spin-off Star Wars novel and I'm back in the fold guys! <laughs> Alright! Bring on the Doctor Who! Well, my temporal grace has nothing to do with Doctor Who. Of course. If I could... Okay, go ahead. (laughs) So, as some of you might know, uh, I have a Doctor Who podcast, Mm -hmm. along with you guys. Really? What's it called? It's called Get Off My World. (laughs) Can I I guest star on it sometime? (laughs) Yeah, we should set that up. (laughs) 
But wearing other hats, I also do other things. And one of the things that I do is I edit large academic volumes about games and new media and things like that. So I'm very proud of the new book that I've just edited called Zones of Control, Perspectives on Wargaming. And it's come out this month. Uh, well, sorry. When you're listening to this, it has come out months ago from the <laughs> MIT Press. It has over 60 contributors who are academics and designers and defense industry personnel and artists. Uh, it's a huge book. It's over 800 pages. So a light, about, breezy read. Then. A light, breezy read. <laughs> well, uh, we did make a point, my co-editor Matt Kirschenbaum and I, of making them all readable for the most part. There's not a lot of academic jargon in this. There's not a lot of postmodern deconstruction or anything like that. This is any. This is accessible to any interested reader. And I'm plugging it on this show because this is a show that I have and that I can <laughs> use to plug. Uh, and to tie it in with Doctor Who, I will say that there is not a single reference to Doctor Who in the entire 848 pages. Incredible. But there might have been. I had some ideas. For a while there, I thought, oh, let's try to reproduce some panels of that Steve Moore Doctor Who monthly comic that I talked about on this podcast a long time ago. It's from one of the Absalom Dark storylines where there's a chess game between the robot click brain and this other character and it mimics a real war that's happening out there. I thought, ah, wouldn't that be great to get a to, to get the reprint rights for that? And then I didn't do that. And then I was also <laughs> thinking of shoehorning in a reference to the final Patrick Troughton story, The War Games, uh, because it's a book about wargaming. And I, I think, correctly assumed that my co-editor probably would have had me cut it out if, <laughs> if I had chosen to do that. So in the end, there's not a single word about Doctor Who in the entire thing. But I think it is of interest to um, people in general, if they have any interest in the subject whatsoever. Oh, and it does have a contribution by Adam Scott Glancy, former guest from oh, the, yes. on this program, who talks about combat in tabletop role-playing game systems. Okay. So uh, if you have any interest in the subject, listeners, uh, this is me being very self-indulgent and plugging myself. You know, honestly, I could see like uh, some some variant of Warhammer done with Santarans. <laughs> and of course, there's an essay on Warhammer 40k. I, how could there not be? Excellent. Yeah. Well, you should have told people that there was one hidden Doctor Who reference in the book. <laughs> but you have to buy find it. it. <laughs> yeah. And let us know if you found it, and there'll be a no prize for you. <laughs> <laughs> one volume of Zones of Control is actually a segment of the key to time. <laughs> <laughs> Round two, special topics Dalek. As the guest on the show today, I have been asked to provide the special topic. And um, what I'm going to ask the uh, the boys here is, um, you are now the showrunner of Doctor Who. And Capaldi has quit, or been pulled apart by hounds. And um, you have to get a new doctor. And you can get any... Living actor. Maybe you have an unbelievable amount of money. Maybe you have pictures of them. It doesn't matter. But one way or the other, you can get any living actor to be the Doctor in your first season at least of Doctor Who. What actor do you pick? Hmm. Oh, I, having, <laughs> yeah. having asked the question, I, of course, came up with my answer. So should I just go ahead you while go you guys ahead. think about it? Since you, you're all yes. really cogitating like, like nobody's business. So yes. I'll just go ahead with mine. Mine would be Tilda Swinton because I... Uh, Instead of an Asian doctor? <laughs> you monster. <laughs> That's the... Oh, boy. Do we go into that? No, we don't. But um, 
I would like to see the Doctor be a little more of a space alien. Be uh, be a little more of not just a particularly charming man. Yeah, English yeah. English person, and uh, you know, not not go too far. Obviously, we still need the charisma. Obviously, we still need the relatability, but um, get it a little a little bit inhuman. And I don't think there's any living actor who uh, who can pull off inhumanity like. Uh, Tilda Swinton. I'm thinking specifically of uh, of her in Narnia, where she was just the White Witch, where she was may as well have been a human character and yet wasn't, and yet was really ticky and weird and uh, and curious. And I really enjoy when she does that, and I'd like to see her do that for a season as the Doctor. Well, I think my choice will also be a woman. Okay. Uh, this had been floated around on the internet in some vague sense uh, a few months ago, I think, but Helen Mirren. I think it would be an excellent doctor. First, of course, uh, time for a woman doctor. Mm-hmm. Not as alien as Tilda Swinton, mm-hmm. but she has the imposing, dignified presence sure. that some of the more elderly doctors have. You can see her being a commanding figure and bossing around companions. Yeah. Sort of a Peter Capaldi-esque yes. character. And if I had to go a traditional white male route, mm-hmm. let's just go ahead and get Daniel Day-Lewis in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He could he could play. Multi- he would have to live as the doctor <laughs> for like months. Well, I'd like to see him do different personalities, like every episode. Oh. <laughs> well, this is the first thought that comes to my mind. I always mangle this guy's name. Um, Ali G. No. <laughs> Meatloaf. No, no. no. Um, Joetta Legitafor. I, I I was thinking. Mm. Interesting. Um, I I was thinking. Uh, Richard Ayoade. He's the guy who played Moss on the IT crowd. Oh, oh, I like it. I've never seen the IT crowd. What? What? <laughs> it's super podcast. funny. I'll show myself out. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, not not necessarily. I, I, if he's just doing a repeat of Moss, that would be terrible. But I think he could um, expand that intense nerdiness into a, a more action-oriented sort of thing. He's a younger guy, too. Yeah, he, he is a younger guy. I'm going to guess he's about 40. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 35, he's in the, like 35 to 40 range, I guess. Segway yeah. laughter into tears. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, that tells me he's 38. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so does, it ha- does it have a pronunciation key for his last name? I always... Keep vamping. I'll get back to you. <laughs> Joshua? You know, I keep thinking of women... It has nothing to do with your question. <laughs> <laughs> it's just this thing. No, tell us, tell uh, us more. No, and now I'm terrible with um, actors' names, but um, I'm going to have to look her up. Uh, she's the star of Happy Valley. Sarah Lancashire. Sarah Lancashire. She's in Happy Valley, and she can seem really intimidating, but she looks ordinary at the same time. Oh, sure. And so I'd like to see her play it like the doctor is a bag lady. <laughs> Just find her materialized somewhere rummaging through garbage cans and have, you know, empty wine bottles. Well, she her. can play Iris Wildtime. Is she really good? Yes. <laughs> Wasn't there something where Haley Atwell said she'd play the doctor if she was asked? I'd watch the crap out of that. <laughs> uh, Kelvin? Richard Ayawadi. Ayawadi. Okay. <laughs> Richard Ayoade. You have it's, you it's, have a kid that just says the names of on YouTube on YouTube. Okay, yeah, I don't just necessarily know how to pronounce Peleus e Melisonde. Yeah, <laughs> I, I look that up. I did always sort of pronounce his name like it was a beverage. You know, Ayoade. <laughs> 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 
And now round three, the randomizer. And as we mentioned, today's randomized episode is not randomized. It's been selected uh, for two reasons. Uh, one, uh, the brigadier is in it, and we've been looking at the brigadier throughout all his various eras on Doctor Who. And for uh, the fourth Doctor, we chose his one story. <laughs> no, his second story. I'm sorry, he had robot. We chose Terror of the Zygons. But also, it was an excuse with the Loch Ness Monster in it to have our resident monster expert uh matt kesson join us yeah so it's uh it's very well regarded in doctor who fandom and i think probably for good reason uh, we all agree oh yeah uh yeah. it was written by robert Banks stewart who died just earlier this year as we noted on an earlier podcast and directed by our old friend dougie campfield uh who's done a lot of the episodes that we've been talking about recently yeah. like uh, part of the daleks master plan and the web of fear uh, he was also the one who originally cast Nicholas Courtney as the Brigadier. Uh, also, it has music by Jeffrey Burgon, who I've talked about on this show mm-hmm. earlier. He died in 2010, but before that, he was an accomplished composer who did a lot of work for TV and film, including Seeds of Doom for Doctor Who, that's his only other one, but also things like Brideshead Revisited and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and Monty Python's Life of Brian. Mm. Uh, but he also did a whole lot of more serious compositions. I have a fine CD collection of some of his various orchestral works and songs called Merciless Beauty, and there's another one called The Fall of Lucifer and other works. So this is all good stuff if people want to check out uh, Mr. Burgon. And he, he's great in this story. I love the incidental music. It's odd. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's experimental. It's, uh, it's not like, you know, some of the other more experimental scores we've heard, um, like in the third Doctor era, where it's like, I'm going to hit the synthesizer with a hammer. (laughs) I love it. And it has to be the only Doctor Who story that opens with a desperate request for Haggis. It's like the first line of the story. (laughs) You know, we were uh, talking on on an earlier podcast about British television and and the ethnic humor they have to other non-English Brits. They really do treat Scotland like it's an alien planet. Yeah. This is weird because uh, I know that Robert Banks Stewart was himself a passionate Scotsman. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so if that were not the case, this would seem treacherously close to racism. (laughs) You know, is it kind of more uh, poking fun at oneself and one's own culture because Robert Banks uh, Stewart does it? I I mean, mean, he talks about Haggis, then there's, there's... Angus Ferguson McReynold, who is the <laughs> seventh son of a seventh son. <laughs> who plays the bagpipes gratuitously. Yeah, and the, and the, yeah the doctor's <laughs> wearing his tam-o-shanter for no reason at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then he has the gall to come in and just point at the brigadier's kilt. Sarah Jane like laughs at the brigadier's kilt. Nicholas Cordy kind of puffs himself up a little bit. Too. I don't really know. The Stuarts are proud. <laughs> yeah, the, the groundskeeper guy uh, for the Duke is nicknamed... The Caber. The Caber, yeah. yeah. Which is like having a groundskeeper in America nicknamed The Football. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, like, uh, you know, and it's like his real name is too Gaelic is, to be pronounced. Is, is. Come on! Kilty McBagpipes. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And it, uh, it ends in the joke about a real Scotsman would get a refund on those tickets. Oh, yes. yeah. Yep. 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 Like a yep. Scrooge McDuck yep. or something. <laughs> Has the, old, the old stereotype of Scots being cheap. You, know, you don't see that much anymore, but... Has anyone here been to Scotland? 
No. I've been to Scotland a couple of times, and... Uh, Everything in this story is true. Everything in this story is absolutely true. Half the people I met were called the caber. Um, the, uh, no, because, you know, I was, I was you know, in my late 20s, but the first time I went there, and, you know, I'd consumed a lot of, you know, British media, and seen this sort of ludicrous uh, stereotyping, and... Uh, and just silliness as far as Scotsmen were concerned. And, and and in general, the idea that Scott that Scotland was this weird wilderness, this foreign land. And, uh, and I'm like, how can anywhere, you know, that you can drive in two days from London uh, be a wilderness? And we actually got to Scotland and we were like, oh, oh. Because Scotland is just hills and mountains and trees and, and single lane roads. I don't mean a, a lane each way. I mean one lane total. And you know, that there, there's Edinburgh and there's Glasgow and stuff, but uh, you get out of them and it gets real wildernessy real fast, even even now. And so it, uh, the whole Hadrian's Wall thing, the whole thing where the Romans conquered everything they saw until they got to Scotland and were like, whoa, okay, no. Let's just... <laughs> <laughs> Screw this. We're not dealing wall. with the weirdos who paint their faces blue and yeah. run naked into battle. It's, no, it's, I mean, just on a purely geographical level, it actually uh, it actually makes a, a tiny bit of sense. But you know, I've been there a couple of times. One time, I heard a guy say "Ken" instead of "No," um, and otherwise, I've never heard any brogue. I couldn't find haggis. I wanted haggis, and I couldn't. F- I, nobody was serving it. Uh, yeah, I mean, haggis falls <laughs> down that way for some reason. I mean, all the rest of it is pure nonsense. But the idea that they regard it as a foreign land is actually kind of not surprising. It still seemed fairly affectionate in this. Oh, yeah. Uh, Douglas Canfield makes some nice scenes out of it. I, I love the scene where the Brigadier and Benton are talking, and they're just doing doing a straight scene, but they're shouting over the bagpipes. <laughs> like, that's a nice scene. Well, actually, I'll go ahead and throw this in right now, actually, is that one thing One thing that was really strange about this episode to me was that uh, Loch Ness itself is in the Great Glen, which is a, a huge fault line going through Scotland. And it's like 20-some miles long and about two miles wide. It's this huge, long lake with just mountains going straight up on both sides, all the way up and out. It is breathtaking. It is an absolutely gorgeous place to be, monster or no monster. And in this in this episode, it's kind of this lake. It's kind of this little <laughs> lake and there's some trees. Um, and it just does not resemble any part of the actual Loch Ness, which I thought was really strange. I, I mean, you're in Britain. This is one of your big things. Somebody in your audience knows what Loch Ness looks like. <laughs> I mean, the gas budget only allows you to go like four hours out of the city. And you're like, oh, is there a lake? Okay, that'll work. Yeah, that's a lake, I guess. One of the great things about this is the Zygon design and oh, yeah. mm-hmm. yeah. the direction and lighting in that spaceship. It's weird. It is I, mean, I mean, the whole organic massaging, the nodules. I, yeah, the massaging I, is, oh, stop it now. Yeah, I remember being super amazed by that when I first saw this as a kid, the whole organic technology thing. Yeah. And and they don't make, like, a big deal out of it, really. There's no big scene where, like, hey, this is organic technology. It's just there. There it is, and mm-hmm. they, yeah, and they stroke it. And no one titivates any fronds, though. <laughs> <laughs> if I do in the new series. But I, I love the colors. I love the green and red. I kind of... I, want a Zygon television set. I would love the blobby, <laughs> the blobby screen with yeah. the veins and the red and green tint. Maybe just something you can put in front of your television set. <laughs> so you can just pretend you're a Zygon watching a Scandal. Let's watch it. 
<laughs> you know, there's probably an app for that. Probably, uh, the Zygonizer. <laughs> <laughs> now I can watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians uh, the way it was intended. <laughs> I think David Cronenberg made that film already. Yes. <laughs> so uh, the Zygons only appear in this one classic series, Adventure. Their fame is way disproportionate to their screen time. And mm. a lot of that is because they were striking enough to constantly get in the various kids' books and sure. field guides and whatever sort of media tie-ins mm -hmm. that um, they showed up in the comics, the comics every so often. Uh, but yeah, for for a race that's so associated with Doctor Who, this is the only one. They're only ever on television again in um, a Day of the Doctor. Yeah, you know? I, I read the novelization called Doctor Who and the Loch Ness Monster of this of this series, or I read Terrence most, Dix. I read most of it anyway. Yes, Terrence Dix, which meant that it was. Uh, Pretty much just the script rewritten as a book, and uh, really not a lot of literary flourish to it. But uh, but one thing that's interesting is that the, the the Zygons are a little bit different in their description in the book, which means that presumably it came before the you know costumes were made. And like they have claws, they have huge terrible claws, and uh, the face was terrifyingly alien with huge malevolent green eyes and a small puckered mouth. Whereas in fact, I mean I like the Zygon design very very much, but for me personally, and you know. I'll leave quietly if I have to, but for me, <laughs> for me personally, the thing about the Zygons is that they're, you know, for the most part, they're these sort of bloated cubist squid, and it's amazing, but then they have just this human face in the middle of them, and that and that's weird to me. Um, in, a, in a bad way? In a I bad find it, way. See, I, I think uh, the human features for me make the Zygons more nightmarish, because everything else seems it is, so... It is surreal, certainly. Well, about them. They, can I even use this word? But they, they make the human face look as sphinctery as possible. <laughs> <laughs> the big expanses of flat flesh that yeah, surround this tiny little human yeah, face yeah. just sunk in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah. no, it's weird. I'll give you that. But and I'm surprised that they added the bit with the Loch Ness monster that they feed off the lactate. They lack the yeah, they're mammals. The lactating Loch Ness monster. Yeah. That means yeah. they're mammalian, yeah, which is super weird. It's, it's a really strange little detail to throw out there in one line. It explains why the Loch Ness monster is there, but it is, they went out of their way to find the, the strangest weirdest reason. Because they yeah. could just say, he's our attack dog, essentially. Right. But yeah. it's cybernetic. Yeah, it's they establish that it's got, you know, robotic parts to it. And they always call it the Scarison, not. A scarison. Our scarison. So it's like it's not like a cow. Yeah. Right. It's it's the cow. One way that cyborg is defined is you take a living thing and replace some of it with machines. But in a lot of old science fiction, you get this idea that a cyborg is basically a thing created out of nothing, out of both robotic mm -hmm. and biological parts. And I don't know. I kind of got that vibe for the Scarison, was that the Scarison mm. was a creation that happened to be partially biological. Well, it fits in, too, with the, uh, their their spaceship is clearly part organic yeah, and yeah. part mechanical, and even the uh, Zygon tracking device. And I love the Zygon tracking device. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. doctor calls it a filthy thing because it bites him. Yeah. It bites on his hand. <laughs> yeah, I remember that from a kid. Like, it sticks to his hand, and I'm, like, being, like... And he screams. Really ah! kind of horrified by that. Yeah. Visceral creepiness of it. Yeah. yeah. The one thing, though, the Zygon's ability to shape shift is totally undermined by their complete inability to act. 
Because like <laughs> yes. they, they are just they they just utter dicks. <laughs> they, they they stare Give coldly at people. Yes. <laughs> like the they just need to take some improv classes. Just yeah, a little bit of yes and. The Duke <laughs> has always hated the oil companies for some reason. It gives yeah. the actors a lot of fun stuff to do. Like the the Duke of Forgill, that's John Woodnut, yeah. who's been on Doctor Who like several times. He was mm-hmm. in Spearhead from Space, and he'll being the keeper of tracking and stuff, but uh, he's the most notable one where he's different as a Zygon impersonator yeah. and as himself. But I want to um, give a nice little shout out to uh, Sister Lamont, mm-hmm. Lilius Walker, who's actually really good. She's super creepy oh, as yeah. the yeah. nurse. Yeah. But the second you see her as a normal human, she's like suddenly really warm and likable. Yeah. 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 Uh, the, the Duke, what's funny is, is from the first moment you see him, um, the doctor waves him uh, down at the side of the road. He pulls up in his car and the window comes down and just immediately hates them. He hasn't met them before. Yeah. <laughs> he has this scowl on his face. But he still gives them down. a ride. <laughs> yeah. Which seems like a an interesting thing for a Duke to do. Just, oh yeah, hop in. An evil Duke, yeah. Zygon evil Duke. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they can't leave those guys on the yeah. side of the road. Come I mean, on. come on. Unbecoming. How, how, how just because uns- I'm a Zygon doesn't mean I'm a monster. <laughs> <laughs> how unscathed. Scottish would that be? <laughs> One of my favorite lines of the whole thing is, well, you know, they're going to disrupt the energy conferences is the big plan. And and it's like, like, well, that's right, because the Duke of Forgill is the president of the Scottish Energy Commission. And the Duke goes, that's right, I am. <laughs> I totally forgot. <laughs> It's an odd moment. It, it, uh, it suggests have... that in an earlier draft he might have been killed or something. It yeah. wasn't supposed to be there when that line was yeah. delivered. For the most part, the the dialogue is super good, though. The, yeah. it, it, Banks, oh, Rubber Bank Stewart is just it's great line after great line. You've been hiding too long, Broton. It's become a habit. You can't rule the world in hiding. You have to come out on the balcony sometimes and wave a tentacle if you'll forgive the expression. Like a That's Zygon Mussolini. It's a great yeah, fourth doctor, yeah. You know, it made me realize, like, this used to be such a, a, a thing, especially in the you know early Tom Baker years, like, where you would see the doctor in pain. Yeah, he gets tortured a lot. Well, like, like, he literally, like, to send a message, like, he just... Oh, I'll bridge the gap between these two power sources with just oh, yeah. my body. Me. Like, what the hell, Doc? <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's you know, I, got to be another solution to this, yeah. You know, that that's like, well, let's see if half power is lethal. And just Yeah, early Fourth Doctor took took a lot of beatings and dished yeah. out a lot. He was yeah. kind of the Jack Bauer the, the Fourth Doctor. doctor he, yeah. he has no problems with blowing up those two Zygons. He's mm-hmm. just very excited. It's a self-destruction button. Let's blow him up. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't, there's no thought. Like, do mm-hmm. I have the right? No, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you, this is as good as Tom gets. He's, he's very weird and alien. He's always mm. staring creepily into space and talking without looking at people and yeah. in, like, a strange monotone. Mm-hmm. And like he does, you know, he'll get really excited about something totally trivial yep. and speak about really important things in a oh, yeah. completely blank way. There's a great line where the, the Duke asks the doctor, are you a party to this nonsense? And he says, I'm not a party to any kind of nonsense. And it's not so much a great line, but Tom Baker delivers it in a way that says, I love nonsense, while saying I'm not a party to any nonsense. It's just, it's just a perfect Tom Baker Well, line. like he's listening to like the, the brigadier's briefing with his hat kind of pulled over his eyes and he's leaning back and finally he just like bangs on the table, brigadier, brigadier, come on. Yeah. Or just the thing in the very beginning when they, when he first appears in the episode where he's leading Sarah and Harry and, and, he, and he just says, stop! <laughs> Onward. <or whatever>. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love the, the detail that Harry's wearing the doctor's scarf for no particular reason. Because, the, scar- of... because the doctor has a tartan scarf at the beginning. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was saying it had a little kind of post- 
post-coital touch. To <laughs> Let's wear each other's clothes. Uh, I'll save that for the fan fiction. <laughs> but I did, you know, like it is kind of it fits the fourth Doctor's personality. Like, oh, I'm in Scotland. I better wear a different scarf. Yep. They might they might uh, arrest me or something. If I don't. This way, I'll fit in. Yeah. The Zygons are also not immune to bullets. So finally the brigadier gets monsters that he can actually shoot. He's been complaining for years at this point that the aliens are always immune. But no, he blows away a ton of uh, yeah. ton of Zygons in this. Including, and can I have a moment of silence too for the poor unlucky unit SOB who Broton kills in the last few minutes of episode four right <laughs> and then yeah. before yeah. the brigadier yep. shoots him? It's like, oh, he's just going to could have stayed out of the way just like a second longer. <laughs> that guy would have been fine. Should I say a few words about the Loch Ness Monster? Of course. Yeah. yeah. All right. How accurate is this to the real Loch Ness Monster? <laughs> well, it's funny you should put it that way. Um, it doesn't look much like the like the famous surgeon's photograph. No, it doesn't. Well, it doesn't really look like most of the... Uh, yeah. The... Uh, Okay, I'm going to talk as if this will be edited. Um, <laughs> the, uh, Good luck. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, now you know when we did Invasion of the Dinosaurs, that I was I was very forgiving. I mean, other than the you know poor just quality of the effects, the designs and so forth were very much in keeping with what they knew about dinosaurs at the time. Um, the irony is that, of course, you know you can't really say anything definitive about you know the Loch Ness monster because if it does exist, then you know we don't know what it looks like, and certainly. Uh, not we don't know fully what it looks like, and certainly descriptions vary pretty widely, as they would even if it did exist, because it's kind of a you know blind man and the elephant sort of thing. But um, boy, this just gets everything just as wrong as it possibly can. I mean, it's a monster that lives in the water and has a big long neck, and that and and, and Scotland they also Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just a bunch of. I mean, just it has it has these big clawed feet, which the Loch Ness, you know, the Loch Ness Monster obviously has flippers or fins of some sort. It kind of has They're, they're web webbed. Feet, right? I grant you that they're webbed, okay. but they're, 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 big and, they're big and clawed. It's like 300 feet long, <laughs> um, which the Loch Ness Monster, generally speaking, is not. It has molars that make canine-like impressions in stone. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, but see, <laughs> that, that's actually because I'm, I'm accepting all of the stuff about it being a lactating cyborg. That's fine. We're <laughs> we're, we're that the you know the Loch Ness monster of cryptozoology is not a lactating cyborg, but for our purposes it is fine. That's that's getting a pass. And uh, there's the thing where they're in the Duke's library, and he has hundreds and hundreds of, of books about the Loch Ness monster. Many of them very ancient, and this is not real. Yeah, isn't like the first recorded. Citing some monk wrote something in like yeah, well, 800 AD. There's something. a yeah, there's a, a uh, an encounter between Saint Patrick and a monster in the River Ness. Um, if if we took everything <laughs> that Saint Patrick found and cast out, then we'd have real problems. So it, it's it's not really terribly useful. And then it kind of goes silent until 1933 when the modern thing happened. Um, and there's and again, if there is a Loch Ness monster, there's a reason for this, which is in 1933 they finally built a goddamn road to Loch Ness, <laughs> <laughs> which they didn't have before. And as soon as that road opened, the Loch Ness phenomenon started to happen. Um, people started to see it, and there's all this talk of the Scottish knowing about it before the road was open, but at this point, that's all kind of muddied. There's no way to say what happened before 1933 because there are too many people with too many 
motivations to uh, to really get that down. So certainly, yeah, there were no books in the Loch Ness Monster before 1933, and and I own every book on the Loch Ness Monster that I have ever seen for sale, and uh, and that's... so your credentials are solid. <laughs> <laughs> and that's about two dozen books total. Okay. Um, you know, like you know, people like the Loch Ness monster, but there's not that much to it. I mean, and one of the things, and this is a this is an aside, but like the first time I went to Loch Ness, I had 150 pounds uh, in in British money uh, earmarked for dumb Loch Ness monster crap because, of course, one of the big things about the Loch Ness monster is that it's the great Scottish tourist trap, right? Mm-hmm. I spent about 50 pounds. I spent about a third of that because I couldn't. Find anything else? They're not good at tourist traps in Scotland. <laughs> um, so yeah, long necked lives in the lake in Scotland, and other than that, just just completely off off the off the chain, which is fine. You know, I mean, I don't I don't I don't care deeply, but I've I've been brought on tonight for a purpose, <laughs> and this is what I have to say about it. So the Loch Ness monster does not stand up uh, in this one, but what do we think? Final verdict on the story itself. Well, it's, it's a good great. episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. It's One good. of the best classic Doctor Who stories ever. I love it to death. And it taught me never to underestimate the power of organic crystallography. And that to be dependent on a mineral slime just doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of the high points of my childhood was this story. I honestly tried to look at this with more critical eyes this time. And, and I really could find nothing. All, all I could really come up with like... The, the wacky Scotland stuff in the first episode, and that's really all like, it's, I could think of as like a criticism, really. It's not part of my childhood. This was actually my first viewing of the thing. Oh. And uh, and yeah, and I, I liked it. Like I said, I, I, I uh, the Zygons' tiny human faces in the middle of their giant mass of suckered <laughs> flesh were, was, was a, little bit, a little bit distressing to me. But no, other than that, it was very solid, and uh, the performances were great, and the story was great. And, uh, and yeah, and, and at the end of the day, the Loch Ness Monster was a, was a lactating cyborg from space. One of the working titles, actually, <laughs> of the And now round four, Wonderful Afunctionalism. In the past, we've used this round to share some of our Doctor Who-themed poetry. And for today's episode, we're asking you, our listeners, to send us some of your Doctor Who poetry. We'll put it on our Facebook page, and if it's particularly awesome, we'll give it a dramatic reading on one of our future episodes. But for now, we're going to kick off our listener poetry series with a poem from one of our avid listeners, who also happens to be my son. Aaron. This poem was written for Aaron's 10th grade language arts class, and it is titled Change, My Dear, and Definitely a Moment Too Soon. A grouchy old man ran away, a thing that was subject to change, running from his people back on Gallifrey. But then something happened which was rather strange. He woke up as a short little man, confused and still lost. Then came the dashing dandy, quite spry for his age. Next, the childish one, who failed his mission and knew not the cost. Then, the young compassionate one, slow to rage. The egotistical one was next, boasting as to who was best. Out of him came the scheming plotter, disguised as a fool. Finally, the romantic, who was more thoughtful than the rest. At least he was, until the universe fell under another's rule. On the hill, the eighth fellow stood, looking at the orange plains, his traveling days truly over, as the blood of his people reigns. 
If you'd like to hear your poem read on the podcast, please send it to getoffmyworld at gmail.com. Okay, and now it's time for our fifth and final round, Arcs of Infinity. We've been doing a lot of these lately because we've been listening to a lot of connected audios. Uh, And so here we're going to talk about two audios by the writer Paul Mars, M-A-G-R-S, but pronounced Mars. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. Uh, Mars has been writing Doctor Who stuff for quite a long time. Uh, I first read some of his novels. I think, Josh, you had recommended Mm -hmm. them to me. But he wrote several Eighth Doctor ones, The Scarlet Empress, The Blue Angel, Mad Dogs and Englishmen. He wrote a Third Doctor novel called Vertigree. I love that one. Vertigree is my favorite of those. Um, so, uh, and he's done quite a number of audios and various other things. Uh, I've So the point being, I've read and heard a lot of his Doctor Who stuff. It's always well-written and very funny and sometimes tips over into a tongue-in-cheek campness that can sometimes get on my nerves. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but tonight we're going to talk about two of his Eighth Doctor audios, The Horror of Glam Rock... And stop right there. Yeah, just, I know. <laughs> put, it, put in a little guitar the squeal there. <laughs> <laughs> and the Zygon Who Fell to Earth, uh, both starring uh, Paul McGann and Lucy mm-hmm. Sheridan Smith. And I think it's safe to say they're highly recommended. Yeah, yes, I really both like of them. them. Yeah. For sure. And they have a little bit of um, through line in them here and there for arcs that were going on during those seasons. But they're very minimal, and their audios you could just dip into you could just grab these from there's, there's a teens, like I, I had to look this up because there's a teensy reference to the headhunter but no. otherwise it's easy to dip in and just enjoy these as standalone stories right and as a person who hasn't seen that much classic doctor who or indeed heard any audios until these i enjoyed them both immensely so uh so don't listen to joshua listen to me <laughs> <laughs> well it's got to be said too that they're especially uh horror of glam rock is so up my it's so in my wheelhouse Oh, yes. It's, it's 1974, England. It's all about glam and pop music at the time. They find a dead body on the side of the road with a silver spangled top hat and like a crushed <laughs> velvet jacket. A dead glam rocker. <laughs> it's, it's 1974. It just takes off from there, yeah. It's so good. And Bernard Cribbins yes. as the manager. Oh, God. He's what perfect hell, casting yeah. for, a, for a rock manager guy. God. I'm going to stretch my uh, my Bowie nerd here for mm-hmm. a minute. Uh, Bernard Cribbins plays a character called Arnold Corns, mm-hmm. which is an obscure David Bowie in-joke. Arnold Corns was a 1971 Bowie side project. It's the name of essentially the proto-Spiders-from-Mars band. Wow. Oh. I don't know where that name came from in Bowie's obscure imagination, but the name of the band was Arnold Corns. Wow. And so that's the name of the that's character here. That's super nuts. There's a lot of... Odd glam rocky references here, many of which I'm not getting, but some like the aliens are called the only ones. Oh yeah, which was a uh, short-lived but influential English punk band that was founded in 1976. It's also the name of a Hawkwind song, which is I don't. I, I'm assuming Paul Mars is thinking of the band and not the Hawkwind song, but I don't know. <laughs> but there, there is. Isn't there like a line of dialogue? Hey, doctor, leave those kids alone. Yes, <laughs> there is. There's also, Tommy, can you hear me? Yeah. <laughs> but it, it it doesn't feel shoehorned 
in when you listen to it. No, it's it just fun. it seems like totally natural dialogue and everything. Yeah. Yeah, he he rides the line on being very flippant and silly and being pretty dark. Sure. Yeah, well, I mean there's these monsters in it to, you know, toot my spoiler thing. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Um that the doctor describes as like prehistoric mammals only not of this earth, which is not really a phrase that makes any sense, but um, <laughs> but yeah, but they're they're trapped in this in this like roadhouse, road yeah, house place. and uh, and outside there's these giant sort of bear lizards who attack anyone who comes out, which is in fact terrific. But like people go out, and then there's this <laughs> horrific and people and people yeah, and people going then he's being torn to pieces, and I'm like whoa, uh, I don't I don't feel like I mean there's some blood and stuff sometimes mm-hmm. in in actual Doctor Who, mm-hmm. but this kind of implicit on camera, even though you're not looking at you know, even though it's an audio savagery is something that I thought was remarkable. Yeah, that girl gets torn to pieces too. Yeah, Tommy's yeah. sister. <laughs> Yuck. Yeah, yeah, and Arnold Corns gets a sort of free pass for that because <laughs> he volunteers to sacrifice himself later, but it, he ends up still being alive, and everyone just sort of lets him off the hook for essentially getting this young girl torn to pieces <laughs> by, by, by a lizard bears. alien lizard bear. <laughs> I think that's Paul Mars having some fun with the normal Doctor Who structure. I think so, too, because I think it's set up at the very beginning when the Doctor and Lucy find the body. And Lucy makes the kind of joke they're going to make throughout it about, you know, I wouldn't be caught dead wearing that. And he tells her specifically, don't be so flippant, someone has died. And I think mm-hmm. Mars is laying out exactly the tone he's going to do. It's like, yeah. okay, listeners, we're, doing it. Oh, we're going to do jokes, but we're also going to murder people. So, <laughs> so buckle up. <laughs> Here's what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have to admit, I didn't quite understand the vibe of, like, the road. I don't want to call it a roadside diner. Because that's a very American the, concept. Yeah, no, there's a British term for these things. They love these things. Uh, I forget what it, what it is. It's, it's, it, it seems almost like a combination rest stop and truck stop. Yeah, and it, it's on one of those long motorways that a rock band would always be taking if it's if they're traveling from London to, I don't know where, yeah. Liverpool? I made yeah. that up. And I don't know. It's a very evocative setting, yeah. though, because they Mars makes a big deal out of the snowfall, and they're trapped in a tiny space. And at first you go, well, it's an audio. Why, why set it in a tiny, confined space? But for some reason... It, it's yeah. very visual, even though right. they could go all over, you know, the universe in an audio with no budgetary constraints. But uh, you can really see the snow coming down and indistinct yeah. figures of monsters out there. Right. It's a it's a great setting. So apparently, the guy who plays Tommy, mm-hmm. Stephen Gately, was a mm-hmm. popular singer in a band called Boyzone, okay. which I've heard of, but mm-hmm. it, they they didn't really uh, translate over here. No, they, but they, they were huge. They were really big. Yeah. The Children of Tomorrow song that you hear in the audio was mm-hmm. his single, was uh, one of a legit released mm-hmm. single at this time. Uh, I, I followed this his biography through, and apparently he died of heart failure yeah, in 2009 really at 33 years old, which was uh, kind of a sad little touch there, yeah. but I uh, thought he did a nice job as Tommy, and the song was perfectly nice. But Awesome. Yeah. So, sorry to yeah. bring us all down, guys. <laughs> uh, but, but the audio's great, guys. Yeah, <laughs> go, go listen to it. And the dead. Yeah, man. I. There's a joke. Supposedly, of... the like on the on the CD, there is a track of the Doctor Who theme done as glam rock. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, outro. the the outro. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. It's... and it and it works. <laughs> oh sure. Yeah. Um, and Paul McGann and uh, Sheridan Smith are really good in this. I really like Lucy 
Miller. She's a really good combination for the Eighth Doctor, who's so, so enthusiastic and happy about things, and she's so sarcastic and yeah. abrasive. I think they make and a just great duo. Particularly these two spills audios. things about people's futures to them, like, for no reason. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, Oops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole thing about her Auntie Pat. Yeah. Well, I don't know if, if the people who are listening to this podcast right now, we should assume have heard the audio, or we're just spoiling the hell out of the audio for them. I don't know what our audience is here. I don't know who you are. You can write in and tell us who you are. <laughs> uh, but the, we'll at least say that there's a through line with a relation of Lucy Miller's. That's kind of what connects these two stories. Yeah. We'll talk more about her aunt when we get to the next episode, but I mean, I have nothing but glowing things to say about this one. I just it's, think it's fun. It's it, Don't expect yeah. anything grand. It's it's a fun riff. It's a fun, a small Doctor kind riff. of Doctor Who yeah, story. Yeah. And uh, it's also interesting to like, uh, as opposed to like, say, the 11th Doctor who doesn't seem to know anything whatsoever about day-to-day human life. You know, like mm-hmm. the 8th Doctor seems totally well-versed in, in David Bowie and, and and stuff like he tries to tell Lucy like no this is a really great era for music seriously yeah and he, when he, when he's rigging the device to beat the aliens yeah. he says I learned this from Eno so anything right, right. <laughs> the doctor can say that it's awesome like the third doctor would say Napoleon or something he's Brian Eno for yeah. eight a uh, quick little autobiographical note the doctor uses the phrase extraordinary how potent cheap music is which is a strange turn of phrase. It's from Noel Coward's play Private Lives Whoa. <laughs> from 1930. Uh, the only reason I, I twigged on this... Is I knew it was a poet. I, I yeah, it, it, it shows up a lot, mm-hmm. which is why I recognized it. I first heard it in a high school production of Christopher Durang's The Actor's Nightmare, and I was puzzled <laughs> by it for years and years because this is before the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then eventually it... Oh, okay, it's from Noel Coward, and it has this life to it, and it keeps getting recast in various histories of pop music. Like, it's a phrase that academic books that talk about popular music yeah. are constantly refer to. So now it's shown up in a, wow. in a Doctor Who audio It's drama. not surprising. Paul Mars is a very literate guy. And yes. I'm sure there's lots of stuff that is going over. You mean there's, a, do- there's a Doctor Who meme? <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to uh, the Zygon Who Fell to Earth. I really like this one. I, the first one, the first one I thought was pretty cool, but I don't know. I was really, I really enjoyed this one. Um, it has a very different tone. It has a very different tone. This one was the most comic Doctor Who story that I've ever seen or heard or experienced. Um, and more to the point, much of the comedy was not delivered by the Doctor, and I've never seen that before. And I really liked it. Well, at the same time, not being a farce, you know, not making fun of the story itself, but still just really funny. And I thought that was great. And then I also liked, you know, spoiler alert or something, but I also liked the the gone native thing. And I was going to ask you guys whether this is something with all of the enormous plurality of Doctor Who stories, this idea of an alien coming to Earth and going native, not merely deciding not to be evil, but in fact just sort of becoming one of us. Has, I, I thought that was really neat. I thought it was really well handled, and I thought it was an interesting idea, and, and has it happened elsewhere in the canon? Well, what's interesting is that it really prefigures the new series Zygons in a way. Okay. Because it seems like a bridge between yeah, old it, series and new series Zygons. Yeah. A- accidentally, I yeah. guess. Uh, this was long before the new series used it, before Day of the Doctor, and the stories about integrating Zygons into everyday life. Yeah, as far as I'm aware, um, 
unless there's some novel that I'm missing or maybe a comic strip or something, Paul Mars uh, just was the first one to come up with this concept, which is, which metaphorically makes perfect sense. If, you, if you're if you an alien who can ch change yourself into a human, then maybe then you just kind of want to stay maybe a human. Maybe eventually, yeah, you Sounds eventually great. are into it. Um, and that's a theme that's picked up on in the new series. In Day of the Doctor, yeah. Yeah, and then later in uh, the Peter Capaldi episodes where there's now okay. 20,000 Zygons integrated into human society secretly. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, disguised as humans. Well. And so there are splinter groups and etc. and it's you know, the usual sorts of complications but this is yeah this this really kind of casts forward he really he really took the idea of Zygons and did something that had not been done with it right before. and somehow it's different to me to have like 20,000 Zygons integrated into human society I mean that's that there's a certain tension to that whereas this is just a single Zygon who's like you know what I'm just gonna be human this is nice and that's and that's a different story to me than, yeah it's a smaller story yeah it feels like there's more at stake Ironically, on a on a human level, yeah. than, than the twenty thousand Zygons, exactly, uh, it's more yeah. of a global stakes. But I also really love, like you said, the comedy that comes from the Zygons, uh, right? Being again like they were in the Terror of the Zygons, really bad actors, right? <laughs> the, the guys playing the music agents. Oh yeah, yeah. Mims, one of them is called. Yeah. I love Mims. Mims. It was Humphrey Mims. Mims, is, Mims the guy. is played by Tim Brooke Taylor, who is one of the goodies. <laughs> Just him yeah. enjoying the sound of his human name, going Humphrey. Humphrey was just gold. Absolutely. And and he, he couldn't do casual laughter, right, either. Oh, he yeah, just yeah, kept yeah. laughing terribly, awkwardly, awkwardly yeah. in the background. Those are just nice touches. And be, because yeah. they show such a, a knowledge of the original Terror of the Zygons, but you don't need to have seen it. Well, well yeah, they, 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 they sort of convey the, the grossness of Zygons by having their Scarison show up and they just sort of greedily yeah yeah like, oh my god yeah the oh. Scarison scene oh wow who wants wow. to read that line of dialogue I'll <laughs> let me do it go ahead palpate it's engorged cybernetic dugs <laughs> Uh, wow. but, um, topped off by so... squeeze out her gorgeous vitality. <laughs> I actually, guys, can that sequence. be our new sign-off? <laughs> uh, squeeze out her gorgeous vitality. Yeah, I liked the heck out of it. Uh, there, there's a little thing. They interview Nicholas Briggs as part of the behind-the-scenes for Zygon Who Fell to Earth, and he was giving kind of a backhanded compliment to the story by saying, well, when I first heard it, I just thought it was going to be too silly. Too silly for the range. Oh, yes, yes. yes, yes. And uh, I was happy to see it take a dark turn at the end there because I think that worked really well. And I was like, hmm, really? I much preferred the silliness, actually. I would have I would have <laughs> yeah. been happy to see Humphrey Mims survive this episode. Um, yeah. the, the darkness, I, well, it was fine. It's Doctor Who. A lot of people die and things blow up. And um, But I, I think I'm just not on the same wavelength as Nicholas Briggs. Uh, I think I he think likes things that are that. different mm -hmm. than I like. Yeah. I will say this about the darkness at the end, though. I don't know if I want to give away the final twist because I would encourage people to listen to it. It's sort of bizarre, yet has some sweetness to it. Yeah, yeah. In those final, it's at least a bittersweet at the end. So I think. Well, it that sort of it sort of brings you back and forth, yeah. you know, and so. Yeah, but something you don't see coming is something that could only come from the Zygon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and it's very Paul Mars. I don't want to go too deep into this because it could we could do a whole episode on this, mm -hmm. but he's very into queer themes 
in his Doctor Who stuff. And so okay. ideas of identity and, and performance. As, as a gay writer, he's been playing around with this stuff the whole time. And so that idea that, well, I'm a Zion, but I can choose to be whatever I want. And, you know, right. I'm accepting of this. Yeah. Uh, Pat is, I'm accepting of my husband. I know all about him. And right. isn't he a hideous monster or whatever? Well, no. You that learned to, You might think he's a hideous monster, but... You learned to deal yeah. with yeah. things. And it's definitely, yeah. well, huh. it's not just a hit beating you over the head either. So, I mean, oh, I think no, it, no, makes, yeah. it makes sense within the story, too. And no, this, I didn't And that's throughout all Palm, yeah. Palmar stuff. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's a joke, but I love the Zygon Lucy's um, constant drinking. Yeah. <laughs> right. When like, the doctor's vodka. like, <laughs> yeah, like well, Lucy, it's, it's just a half pint uh, of vodka. <laughs> <laughs> Final thoughts? I really enjoy them both. They work really well together, and there's still a third story uh, that that wraps up Aunt Pat's story. There oh, is? really? Yep. Uh, Death in Blackpool and wraps up. But that one you might want to listen to more audios because it's sort of a it's caught up in the whole arc of Lucy Miller. And Let's her schedule story. that for a later podcast because yeah. I loved these and I would like to follow through on. Excellent, listeners. You just wait. <laughs> <laughs> right where you are. Don't move. <laughs> It'll be three to four months. <laughs> You want to wrap us up, Matt? Uh, sure. This has been Get Off My World. How do you wrap this up? I don't know. <laughs> Something like um, that. This has, been, this has been Get Off My World. I'm the special guest monster expert Matt Kesson saying I liked the Scarison even though it was wrong. <laughs> I'm Pat, and I agree with that too. <laughs> I'm Joshua, and I think Matt is being overly anal retentive. <laughs> I'm Kelvin, and... Oh, I got to play me pipes! <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me again. And, and as always, get out of my world! Someone was watching the Bulldog Drummond movies. It's like Bulldog Drummond versus the Nazis or something, and there's some comedy relief Scotsman character. <laughs> and they're like supposed to be in hiding and he pulls out his bagpipes and they're like are you crazy and, and he's like oh you don't didn't tell a Scotsman not to play his pipes <laughs> and he starts playing the bagpipes and Nazis are like oh they're over there wow yeah that is that is broad and implausible that could, <laughs> sophisticated Nazi Scotsman detection devices. Yeah. oh boy oh ach 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 <laughs>